This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Erica Sandoval is the person that you could meet on the street and say, wow, she seems like a really nice person. She had the type of upbringing that millions of people have had before. She dated, uh, she fell in love. There's nothing quite like that first thrill of love. She was so into Daniel. The first time she spoke about him, she was just like, oh, the color of his eyes, and he was so nice to her. She was just in heaven. Erica always wanted to just have a stable relationship, have children. It is unquestionably one of the most intense, profound emotions a person can feel. When everything was going the way they should be in her eyes, she was pleasant to be around. It's only when things didn't go her way that she became nasty and, and things got ugly between the two of them. But when intense love flips into hate, it can lead to violence. And from what I saw, the bad was really bad. She had cut up the couch and she had cut up the bed springs and stabbed holes in the wall and you know, taken a bottle of like, pancake syrup and just spread it all over the carpet. Just a ridiculous amount of vandalism. Or even murder. On February 6, 2015, in mid-afternoon, time stood still in Tulare County, when we in the law enforcement community came to find out that Daniel Green was executed that afternoon in the sanctity and privacy of his own home. I'm Erin Moriarty, 48 Hours, and this is my life of crime. There's a reason why cops investigating murders look first at the person closest to the victim. I mean, who else feels so intensely that they would risk everything to hurt another person? The Daniel Green case may change the way you look at domestic abuse, what you think it is, who you think commits abuse, 
and whether the legal system treats all abusers the same. We begin on that awful afternoon in February 2015, the day when 31-year-old Daniel Green was found shot to death in his own bathroom in the town of Goshen, California. He was executed. Here's a man who was literally on the toilet when he was shot. That's the district attorney for Tulare County, Tim Ward. He was still angry when I spoke to him about the case because Daniel Green wasn't just a young man senselessly murdered. He was also a cop, an 11-year veteran of the Exeter Police Department. This crime, when this happened, uh, really ripped apart not only the small town uh, that he was from and, and was a police officer in, but kind of the law enforcement community as well. And because Daniel was a cop who had dealings with local gangs, investigators at first feared his death might be connected to his job. The killer had fired four bullets at Green, the fatal shot hitting him in the forehead. He was found lying on his back in the bathtub. One of his fellow officers is the one that discovered him that day. Daniel loved being a cop. Alex Geyser was the fellow officer who found him. He loved getting out into the community and making a difference. So on the day of the incident, Daniel was supposed to come into work right before me. When I got to the police station, I asked the lieutenant where Daniel was. You get this gut feeling that something's wrong, that something bad was happening. Daniel's home was just yards from his neighbors, but because he was shot in the day, many of them were at work. So no one heard the shots or called 911. No eyewitnesses saw the killer enter or leave the house, and the killer fled with a murder weapon. Matt calls me, and I'd never heard Matt's voice like this. And he says, hey. And I said, what's going on? And he can't really get it out. Daniel's sister, Misty Gray, first heard the news from her other brother, Daniel's twin brother, his identical twin brother, Matt. I couldn't say anything. It, it was like he, there were no words. And you, I said... You knew. I said, just tell me Daniel's okay. <laughs> just tell me he's okay. And Matt said, I can't. I happen to be a twin myself, and I'm not sure I have ever seen two brothers who look so much alike. Even Matt had trouble pointing out to me who was whom in photos. We were kind of like a team. It was the three of us against the world type of thing. They had grown up in the nearby small town of Porterville, California. Both brothers became police officers, although Matt later traded law enforcement for law school. I always thought it was neat that my, my big brothers, who are twins, uh, were both police officers at the same time. And I actually have the same photo of the two of them, and I cherish it. And now Daniel was gone. We will never be the same. Never. My life will forever be changed by this. That's just how it is now. Was his death connected to his job? Daniel did have a reputation as a hard-nosed, by-the-book cop. But that theory didn't lead investigators anywhere, so they took a closer look at Daniel's personal life. At the time of his death, Daniel Green was divorced and living alone. 
But at one time, he had had a very passionate and often tumultuous relationship with Erica Sandoval, his ex-wife. Hours after Daniel was found dead, Erica rushed to the scene, teary-eyed and distraught. She told police that she hadn't seen Daniel that day, and Daniel's brother, Matt, believed her. If it had been years earlier, I think I would have automatically assumed it was her, but we'd just seen them together, um, you know, a month before, and um, it didn't seem like there was any tension, so I just didn't know. I didn't know what had happened. Daniel had met his future wife six years earlier in 2009, and he fell hard. I think he loved her. In his way, he wanted the family. He wanted so desperately to have a family. Uh, Matt was married. By then, I was married, and he was the only one that was not. He was, you know, infatuated with her. And Erica was just as infatuated with him. It's like a little girl, like, you know, when they get candy. They get super excited. She was so into Daniel. Was she? She was. That's Angelica Ramirez, one of Erica's close friends from childhood. But the two came from very different backgrounds. Daniel and his siblings had a tough childhood, while Erica was from a close-knit, middle-class family from Southern California. David is her older brother. She wanted to find the right guy, and then obviously start having a family. Still, everyone was surprised when Daniel and Erica skipped a traditional wedding and got married in Las Vegas. Daniel was 26, Erica 23. I remember getting a text message at 10 o'clock at night with a picture of a marriage license in Vegas. And some of Daniel's friends, especially from a local motorcycle club, were downright concerned. Few things happened before they even actually got married. And I pulled Daniel aside and I said, dude, don't marry this chick. That's Herb Adamy. Tell me why. What was what happened that made you say that? It was the it was all the the incidents at the house. Herb says that Daniel had talked about Erica's anger. He said that she had once cut up furniture with a razor blade. Daniel's brother said that he had heard Daniel crying after Erica laced into him. It devastated me to hear my brother crying and to hear the way that she was talking to him. It broke my heart. Erica was trying to create a rift in the family between us. Daniel's sister and brother said that he might have thought that kind of behavior was perfectly normal because they had grown up in a troubled home with an abusive stepfather. Alcohol? Drugs, alcohol, abuse, stuff like that. Were any of you abused? Physical abuse, probably, and some neglect and stuff. Would your stepfather hit you? Yeah. yeah. With with his hand or with... Belts, boards, um, I guess whatever was laying around. Their stepfather had a long criminal record that included arrests for assault, domestic violence, and driving under the influence. And Misty says... Her older twin brothers took the brunt for her. Matthew and Daniel always protected me. They would get in between my stepdad trying to physically harm us. And um, when I would get scared, I would go crawl in bed with my brothers. Their mother at one point did get a restraining order against their stepfather, who is now dead. But now they worried that the domestic abuse that they all endured as children seemed to be repeating itself with Daniel and Erica. 
In the case of my brother, he was the one constantly being controlled and, and isolated and, you know, verbally and emotionally abused. As an officer, he would probably run into women who were being abused. Would he not recognize himself in that same situation? I think he did. He just probably felt like he had nothing he could do about it, that he was maybe trapped in a cycle. We don't hear about male victims often, maybe because men like Daniel don't want to admit they are being abused. And in fact, it's not as rare as you might think. I think men don't come forward for many of the same reasons that women don't come forward when they are experiencing domestic violence. Katie Meter runs the Tulare Family Services in the county. And she says that she actually had to expand the women's shelter to include rooms for men who were also fleeing abuse. Erica would cut up mattresses and couches. Is that domestic abuse? Absolutely. Property damage is very common. Female victims, they will often describe, well, well, my partner never hit me, but he did punch a hole in the wall. And so there's this threat of physical violence. If I can uh, do this to your property, if I can do this to the things that you love, what can I do to you? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cashback events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Domestic abuse isn't always black and white. If Daniel thought violence was normal in a relationship, then it might explain some of his own behavior. You will model relationships that have been modeled for you. Angelica Ramirez says that Erica had said that Daniel was also abusive. She would tell me constantly that he would grab her and choke her. She told me, He choked her and that she felt like she was going to pass out. Once again, Daniel's sister, Misty. It was a very toxic relationship. People should absolutely know and understand that it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you're five foot or six foot, you can be a, a victim of domestic violence. Matt, did you ever tell Daniel to leave? Of course. A lot. A lot, yeah. He knew it was bad. People don't change. She's not going to change. That's not what happens. There was one more violent episode in February 2011 when the police were called. Neither Daniel nor Erica were arrested, but it was the last straw. The marriage was officially over in January 2012, a little more than a year after it began. I remember thinking he, he escaped this without, you know, anything terrible happening and that Maybe he could get peace and be happy. But then came news that Erica was pregnant with Daniel's child. I was like, geez, he's stuck with her for 18 years. Erica moved back in with Daniel and they tried to make it work. But Daniel's motorcycle seemed to come between them. She hated that motorcycle. Yep, despised it. You know, he'd get on his bike and he'd take off and, you know, she couldn't sit next to him in the passenger seat yelling at him. She hated it so much that one of Daniel's friends thinks she may have sabotaged the bike one day before a ride. Once out on the road, 
Daniel was unable to stop for a red light. And I'm like, hey, what's going on, man? He just grabbed all the wires and he just pulled them out. It was all the wires were all cut up. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. Daniel told Mark Cortez that he believed his wife had cut the wires. He had no question it was Erica. Yeah. Erica later admitted to a friend that she had, quote, just snipped wires. Still, Daniel never reported it to the police and initially didn't even tell his siblings. He hid a lot of the stuff that was going on. I think he knew that it would upset us. Daniel and Erica's son, Aiden, was born in January 2013. I don't have any doubt that the day his son was born was the happiest day of his life. Him having a kid was the best thing for him. On his Facebook, every day it was a picture of his kid. That was his life. That was his pride and joy. But the couple's relationship was just too broken. And in June 2013, Erica moved out of the house. And their problems only got worse. The couple began to engage in a vicious war of words. Dan Chambers is Erica's lawyer. There's a lot of bitterness and anger throughout these text messages, no question about it. I mean, Daniel does call Erica some very bad names in here, and Erica uh, does the same. Daniel won primary custody of his son, which only deepened the divisions between the two. But here's the really weird part. Even with all the anger, all the vitriol, the couple would still occasionally sleep together. And yet, the dysfunction in the relationship was always just below the surface. Like a night in the fall of 2014, when Daniel told his friend Herb that he awoke to find Erica with a gun. He told you that she woke up, dreamed that he had been with another woman and held a gun to his head. What did she say to him at that point? She said that she was going to kill him. If he left her? Yeah, or if he cheated on her. By the new year, Daniel and Erica seemed to have turned a new leaf on the relationship. They were still living apart, but they were civil with each other. And that's why neither Matt nor Misty thought she could possibly be responsible for his murder that occurred one month later. That morning, February 5th, 2015, Daniel Green dropped off their son Aiden with Erica's mother and then went to the gym. It was when he returned home that someone shot him dead, Tulare District Attorney Tim Ward. This was not anything other than a cold-blooded, calculated execution. The day following the murder, Erica was brought in for routine questioning. And that's when her stories began to shift. Erica originally said that she hadn't been inside Daniel's house in weeks, but a neighbor's surveillance camera appeared to contradict her. The video that is out there shows um, a female um, enter into that home. On the very day of the murder, you could see a woman enter the house. Investigators couldn't ID the woman in the video, but they tricked Erica, and they told her they knew it was her. That's when she broke down and led detectives to an empty lot where they found the murder weapon a car 9mm gun. She had shot Daniel with his own gun. Erica Sandoval was arrested for first-degree murder. (sighs) 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Erica Sandoval faced the death penalty for killing a cop who happened to be her ex-husband. Her legal team took nearly five years to prepare her defense. But finally, in October 2019, she went on trial. And that's when prosecutors revealed what they believe was the motive. Daniel was shot one week after he posted an Instagram photo of a new girlfriend, 20-year-old Brenda Vela. Is it possible that Daniel Gray would still be alive if he had never posted that picture on social media? That's an impossible question, but you wonder. It's such a tragedy that we'll never know. Yeah, we'll never know. Still, there is compelling evidence to support that theory, including a yellow sticky note found in Erica's purse with Brenda Vela's name and birth year. Erica also bombarded Daniel with 167 phone calls in the days leading up to the murder. I think when Erica found out that the girl was hanging out with her son and that kind of made her snap. But at trial, Erica's defense attorney, Dan Chambers, tried to shift the guilt away from Erica to Daniel Green himself, in essence, putting the dead police officer also on trial. And at the end of the day, he was abusive. The jury listened over and over again to audio tapes of the couple's verbal battles, like this one over their son, Aiden, who was just a baby at that point. Give him back to me, Daniel. Don't touch me. You're going to f***. Don't hit me. Okay, all right. You're going to jail, you And then Erica takes a chance and takes the stand in her own defense, hoping she can convince the jury that she was driven to take her husband's life. It was a collective decision, and it wasn't an easy decision. At that point, we were arguing a lot. You're listening to Erica herself on the stand, describing to jurors the abuse she claims she suffered from Daniel over the years. He grabbed me by the shirt, my shirt, and he started shaking me back and forth. And as he was yelling in my face, shut the f*** up. He's like, you know, I could kill you and make it look like an accident. That's when, um, when he, uh, grabbed me from my ponytail. He slammed my head up in the dashboard while I was holding Aiden. And And then she told them why she'd gone into her ex-husband's home on February 5th, 2015. According to Erica, she had just gone there to snoop around. Saw the kitchen window, and I figured I'd try to see if it was open. And so I took off the screen and I wedged it, and it was open. She walked through the house, grabbing two of Daniel's guns, and then she claims she found an open safe that contained two photos depicting child pornography. The first picture I saw... Um, it was like a girl, she looked to be maybe like 12, 13, next to a bed. Erica's story took prosecutors and investigators by surprise because she had never mentioned the photographs in any previous statements. 
District Attorney Ward doesn't believe her account. That was the very first time um, that we ever had even heard that or anything close to that. Ward says no such photos were found. But on the stand, Erica says she left them in the safe. It just made me think, like, fantasies that he, like, had with me, the school girl outfits he'd want me to wear. I thought, you know, like, is he watching this kind of stuff around my son? What's the next thing you remember doing? I heard his truck. I was thinking about Aiden. I don't know if he was doing stuff to Aiden, maybe. And then Erica says she heard Daniel come home, and so she hid in a closet. And I heard him coming down the hallway, passing by the room. I was scared. I didn't know where he was going. And when she heard him go into the bathroom, Erica told the jury she just snapped. I stepped out of the closet, and I stepped out of Aiden's room, and I stood right there in front of Daniel. He was on the toilet. As soon as he saw me, he said, I'm gonna kill you. And he started getting up. As soon as I started raising my arm, and he shot. I didn't know how many times I shot, but I knew I shot. Do you regret what you did? sticks to her story about the photos, even when cross-examined by the assistant DA, David Alavesos, who clearly doesn't believe it. You know they're not in the report, so you just expected them to magically show up. No, I advised my attorney as to what I saw. And nobody else? No, just my attorney. Erica says that she deliberately kept the information from investigators. I didn't trust them. They've never given me a reason to trust them. Daniel always told me how they always had each other's backs. She never loses her cool, but Alavezos makes it clear for the jury what he thinks of her story. That's a disgusting lie. To make you feel Daniel's not worth a murder charge. To devalue him as a human being. That is the sole purpose of it. But what will the jury do with the information? Will they believe Erica? Will they feel sorry for her and find her guilty of something less than first-degree murder? In his closing arguments, Erica's attorney, Dan Chambers, puts the blame on both Erica and Daniel, tied together, he says, by a traumatic bond that is difficult to understand. Both are victims and both are aggressors. On November 20th, 2019, the case went to the jury. After four long days of deliberations, they tell the trial judge they're done. They are hopelessly deadlocked. A mistrial. 
deadlocked 11 to 1, with one single juror refusing to convict Eric of murder in the first degree. Three of the jurors agreed to discuss that holdout juror. It came uh, evident that after day after day, hour after hour, that we, she wasn't going to waver. And uh, then the reality of a hung jury started to sink in. And she just never gave much reasoning behind why she felt the way she did. Tensions just got high and they started yelling at each other and it, they were getting emotionally involved. The one juror refused to budge even as her fellow jurors raised doubts about Erica's story about finding that child porn. There was never any pictures that we saw. You could tell she obviously lied on the stand, and I think a lot of the trial was spent by the defense not defending her, but rather attacking Daniel. I think every juror had uh, empathy for her. Uh, They also had uh, empathy for him. Uh, We saw just how vindictive or or forceful that she was towards him. And uh, why is she still staying there? Why is he still staying there? These are the same questions we all have. Why were Daniel and Erica still sleeping together? Could anyone have intervened? Erica is alive, but she's lost everything. She's lost her son, her freedom, her future. Although she wasn't convicted this time around, she will remain in prison until she's tried again for the first-degree murder of the man she says she once loved. It's devastating. There's a a hole that'll never be filled. It'll never heal, ever. Daniel's son, Aiden, is almost 10 and is now living with a man who is the spitting image of his dad, Matt. You're raising Daniel's son. Was that a tough decision? No, not at all. The least that I could do is make sure that he knew how much his father loved him. I'm Aaron Moriarty, 48 Hours, and that's My Life of Crime. This podcast series is developed by 48 Hours in partnership with CBS News Radio. Judy Tigard is 48 Hours executive producer. Jonathan Clark is CBS News Radio executive producer. Production and editing for this season of My Life of Crime by Alan Pang. This episode was also produced by Paula Rosa and Kat Turfs of 48 Hours. Craig Swagler is Vice President and General Manager of CBS News Radio. And finally, a thank you to all of you, our listeners. We owe it all to you, the millions of 48 Hours fans. Don't forget to join me online. I'm at EF Moriarty on Twitter, and we're at 48 Hours on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I'll be talking to you soon. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 